Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. Oh, angels say, Please send me an angel. Hi, and welcome to the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our community at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Joe, early-stage angel investor with a portfolio of around 25 companies thus far, and LP in Cocoa. He focuses on companies with the potential to make a positive impact at scale and helps founders on growth and marketing challenges across a whole mix of sectors. Previously, he was employee number 12 at TransferWise, where he wore various marketing and growth leadership hats from 2012 to 2020. If you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Our end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on the things that matter, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and we've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company will be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on our platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. Welcome to the Super Angel Podcast. Anthony and I are so excited to have you with us, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excited too. Pretty pumped to have you in the pod, Joe. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, I truly believe you're one of the you know most brilliant marketing and brand minds in the tech scene. So very excited to get digging. That's too kind, but yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. So let's get started. Tell us a bit about your story and what brought you into angel investing. Yeah, cool. So my story starts kind of as a marketeer, really, and I kind of fell into working in on the, the internet, I guess. How old are you when you're saying the internet? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, that's it. This was like 20, 2007. So like I started working on like for internet companies doing marketing. And then 2012 was when I joined what was then called TransferWise, which was then a tiny company. I was employee 12 in, into TransferWise. So it was a real like, oh, okay, here we go. Early stage. This is like this growth, 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 working on one of the most exciting well, it was definitely one of the most exciting times of my life, for sure. And being part of that early stage world is something I that kind of later craved for, to be honest, which is partly why I'm here now. So I stayed with TransferWise for eight years, left in 2020, once the company got of reasonable scale. And uh, then kind of just got straight into angel investing straight after that, really. It wasn't really a grand plan, to be quite honest with you. My plan was, okay, I've been doing this for eight years. I need a bit of a break. But also, I didn't want to just completely fester, you know, and like remove any intellectual thinking from my life. So angel investing really plugged that gap quite immediately. And also, I was pretty aware there was like a kind of moment in time where I was starting to get outreach from VCs and other people sort of saying, oh, hey, I see you left wise. We'd love you to be like an advisor for our portfolios and that kind of thing. So there was 
for example, Seed Camp asked me to be an expert in residence, and I was like, well, I can't say no to this. I need to just, you know, these aren't things you can kick down the line. Potentially I could, but I didn't want to, you know, so, so bang. So a few months later, I realized, okay, I'm, now, I'm doing this now. And then I really enjoyed it. And so here I am. You know, looking back, how many angel investments have you done to date? What would you say are some of the, the memorable ones as well or some that you, you're happy to share with us? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on about uh, 25 investments so far. At the beginning, I didn't really have much structure or strategy, I'd say. The very first investment I did was uh, Lightyear, you know, the investing app. It was guys I knew really well from early TransferWise days. It, it was one of those where they said, we're doing this, are you in or not? And I just, I knew the guys so well. And I said, yeah. So the, uh, and I sort of planned to be an investor. And I thought, well, I'm going to actually have to do one then if I'm going to start <laughs> being an investor. So it started that way. And then um, I also joined the Atomico Angel program. Which I highly recommend, by the way. It's it's been awesome as a way of like meeting a bunch of other people and learning stuff in a fast way. So anyway, so at the beginning I was pretty broad, and I've kind of racked up twenty five investments, which all precede seed or a couple of Series A's, a couple relatively small checks, and then since then I reckon about half have had an up round since. I think I'm at about three point five to four x return ish, which uh, so I'm pretty comfortable in what I've done so far. But now I'm really thinking, okay, I need to be way more structured about this. Some of which is like diving deeper into the sectors I've already looked at. And some is more like kind of changing mindset to how I would approach stuff going forward. In terms of sectors... Just before we go even there, like, I don't know, are there any stories of maybe a funny one or something you had to really kind of strong arm yourself into or yeah, the, um, like share? Uh, the first time I ever tried to do an investment in Germany was pretty fun. <laughs> I just had absolutely no idea what level of paperwork was going to be required and presumably you know all about this. We literally had uh, Roxanne for our first episode to say that when we asked her about uh, international investments, she said, well, I did a deal in Germany <laughs> and that was really, pretty ridiculous. <laughs> and basically, it was a, uh, the company was called Vayu, well, it's, it's Vayu, which has uh, since, since gone on and raised a really great Series A and it's a climate uh, software, basically, and uh, they're doing really well. Basically, I held the entire roundup because I got a notary who, it turns out, was part-time and didn't really know what she was doing either. <laughs> and I was there, literally, my, the fact that my notary was part-time was the reason the whole deal wasn't closed. I was like a small Czech angel. It was, uh, yeah, it, was, it was really awkward, but thankfully, it happened. And I then immediately went out and found a really good notary that I know works full time. <laughs> so like, yeah, you've got to have a good notary if you're going to do German investing. I love that. But, uh, yeah. Another really memorable one was uh, Timberhub, which I know, you know, a fellow Greek founder. Indeed. And uh, so that was memorable because I think that was one of the first where in the really early months, and even now to some extent, you know, it's quite easy to look at who else is investing in this deal and kind of being part of it as a result of the diligence done by others. Whereas Timberhub, I think, was the first time I really felt like, ooh, there's someone here that I think others have missed and specifically came to me through Seedcamp and Seedcamp had passed. And, uh, but I, I was quite like, no, I think there's something here. And um, it was the first deal where I really brought in another angel as well. Who So I, the first time I was kind of selling a deal to a fellow angel. And yeah, and, and since then they've done it up around and it's gone well. And it's, it sticks in my mind because it was that first time I really went, okay, I'm actually, I'm kind of pushing this because I believe rather than saying, oh no, it's good because they believe. Full personal conviction. Basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I'd love to hear now, Joe, is angel investing the main activity? How much time does it take up in your life, really? Is it you're all in everything? or One of the beauties of angel investing is it's like as much or as little as you want it to be. So it dials up a lot when, like, for example, when my kids are at school and in the winter, where there's like less other stuff mm -hmm. that you could be doing. But 
but then it can dial down quite neatly when needed. So I do, I do a few other things, but it's certainly my main like professional focus now. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. And portfolio support wise, like how do you think about that and your capacity to be able to support the, the yeah, it's, as well? Again, it flexes as much as you want. I mean, that's definitely one of the biggest sort of learnings I've had is how much you sort of sometimes have to actually push yourself onto the portfolio companies. Like they don't all come and ask for advice a lot. And then obviously with some, like once you build a really good rapport, then it becomes like a really like organic, ongoing, you're talking to them lots. But with others, it's not like that. And someone needs to sort of make that become the way you work. Yeah. But definitely as I get more and more investments, I do feel like I need to think about, am I actually fulfilling on the promise of being useful? Because that, that's the whole point of an ex-operator angel. And if you can't deliver on that, then you, you may as well just be any other investor. Yeah. And how do you think about that, Joe? Because it's always the, as you said, the constant tension of whether you're forcing yourself on the founders and, and thus being, you know, sometimes that's good because it, of course, makes the founder realize, okay, I can get this much out of my investor that I didn't know. But other times it's a bit, uh, you know, get out of my hair. <laughs> um, how do you think about that? How do you keep yourself in check? Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's definitely one of the things I've learned most is like the variation in how much a founder knows how to use their investors, I think. Because like, you know, we are a massive resource that could that should be maximized, but actually it does take time and effort to maximize it. And like, there are definitely times when I've met with a founder and obviously they're very busy and they haven't done much prep. And so the meeting can sometimes feel like, oh, I think we both just kind of not wasted an hour, but we didn't, definitely didn't maximize the hour. Whereas there's other founders which, uh, you know, they're always saying, okay, here's, here's the topic. This is what we're going to be discussing. Here are the specific thoughts. Here's where I need your help. And at the end of those conversations, then like you all, both sides leave feeling like, yeah, that was like, you know, potentially a transformational conversation about like where we're going and what we're doing. So I definitely think there's a level of like understanding how to really maximize your angels that founders themselves don't naturally have always at all times. Do you think about yourself before investing, optimizing for that, meaning, you know, optimizing for working with a founder that you can see, okay, they will actually, they're ready to take me on, they're ready to understand what they can use me for, or is it more, I'm looking at the opportunity and then the other part is either it'll come after the investment or it won't. I don't necessarily look for like, do I think this person knows exactly how to maximize their angel network? It's a nice plus, but it's not like part of my must have what is is like will i enjoy spending time on this subject matter or this problem space and, w and with this person which you know what i don't want to do is rack up a load of investments in sectors that i'm not interested in that might be good returns but i'm just i don't want to spend the time thinking about it my most common sort of uh, really sorry but i'm going to pass reason in email is generally like i just don't feel it i just don't feel passionate there's nothing i can point to that's really wrong here i just don't think this is with my limited time That's what I want to spend it on, you know. So, and then if, you know, obviously the founder's passionate and if I'm passionate too, then that's when good conversations naturally happen. No one needs to force it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, final question before we go on to our uh, segment around investment thesis is I'd love to hear what do you feel that angel investing has given you both on a personal and on a professional level? If you should say one or two things for each, what do you really think? Professionally, I wanted to stay kind of connected without being actually part of a company wise so I wanted to actually make sure I was still part of the scene kind of intellectually challenged so I've pretty quickly because I put loads of time and effort into it built a pretty decent network of people like like Anthony for example who I met about a year ago and it, it's a network that obviously it's really great now but also if I were to go and do something else in future it would be really really great so like I don't know whether I would start a company or start a fund or join a company or you know join a VC 
being a pretty active angel is a really good place to stay while you're making that decision. So like professionally, it's like huge optionality while also right now being rewarding. And hopefully there would be some return on capital as well. That would be nice. <laughs> and then, but personally, it's really like, it's just, it's that like kind of learning, mind expanding. You know, when you're eight years in one company working on one problem space, yeah, you develop all kinds of skills and things that you don't as an investor, but you're stuck in that one problem space and it's quite, it can be very narrow. And so I really like the quick like context switching and having to really, really like engage your brain in, a, in an intellectual way to understand what this person is talking about and why it matters to the world. There's no other kind of part of my life where I think I feel that in quite the same way I do here. Another thing is just like hanging out with early stage people that they're kind of like dreaming, like what could we achieve here? That's, that's very addictive. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely love those kind of conversations. As a company scales to IPO stage, it just can't be part of every day because at that point, you know, a company is really then all about operating and efficiencies and still growing, but in a different way to when you're in the early stage, you know, kind of dreaming and thinking, hmm, I wonder what could be. Being able to spend a lot of my time with people that are thinking like that is awesome. All right, let's cue the music for the investment thesis segment. Rinley asked him what his thesis was on. Boom, that was the sound of the investment thesis segment. I hope you all enjoyed it because that is something we have cooked up just for this very special podcast. And I am a huge fan of our weird angel sound. So <laughs> thanks a million for our audio producer for that. So now I will ask you uh, some questions about your investment thesis. And you were just about to start, uh, you know, embarking on that journey before. So tell me, if I asked you just to give me your investment thesis, what would you say? I would say that I'm something close to an impact investor, but not with a very hard line around it. So I like stuff to be impactful, but in a positive way, obviously, but I'm not quite as sort of religious about that as others. The way I think about it is, okay, there's three really, really basic words that I use, basically good, big, and fast, right? The most basic words. So I always start with a good one. So like, does the world really need this? If this scales to like a billion users, yeah. is that genuinely a positive step, yes or no? And it's actually normally a really easy question to ask, to be honest. Like often someone's getting disrupted, but perhaps it's something that is broken and that the world shouldn't have, you know? So there's always a sort of someone loses often when a disruptive tech comes along, but on balance, do I feel like this is good for the world? That's like a hard filter. And then so the second is then around big size scale. Is it a consumer product, which I think can genuinely hit a billion users, or is it a B2B product, which is horizontal, or is it in a huge vertical? The fast or kind of urgency, I think the more I invest, the more I realize that is so important. You know, like even if it's the world's best idea, this execution speed is the fuel for everything. It's, it's the whole concept of being a kind of a venture investable startup. The speed is there. And I think that really comes from the urgency of the founder, which often loops back is the problem. Does the world need this problem solved? You know, that in itself provides urgency. If I feel like those three boxes are ticked, then I'll go and have the call. And then after that, then it's, uh, it's about specific sectors and things. And the obsession, so, right? Like a founder that's obsessed. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Won't exactly. stop, can't stop. Like, actually, for really early stage stuff, I realized it's not that dissimilar to hiring early employees into a company. So I'd never done any investing before 2020, certainly not angel investing or like what kind of VC style investing, but I'd done loads of interviewing with, with Wise as we were scaling up the team. And so I, I kind of think of it like, for a pre-seed where there's no company to look at or no like no metrics. I kind of think of the company, the pitch, or like what we're we going to build, a bit like a job spec. And then you can go, okay, is this a good job spec? Do we need these jobs done? Or does the world need these jobs done? 
So there's a kind of, okay, is, is the job worth doing? And then the second thing is then, is this person the right person to, to do that job? And it's actually really, you know, and a lot of the early stage interviewing that you do in a growth company is not about expertise, skills, or background. It's about like motivations and why you want to do this and like, you know, stuff that's very similar to what you're looking for in a super early stage founder. I noticed that you don't mention software or digital as such or the internet. <laughs> I to use the word we started with. <laughs> um, how come, do you shy away from hardware as an example? Or do you say, no, if it, if it fits the three and it's with impact, then I'll actually do it. I wouldn't say I actively shy away from hardware, but I'm not like, I haven't lent into hardware. So most of my investments are software of some sort, but I've had a couple of like plant-based food companies in my um, portfolio, for example, which is definitely not software. Would you mention them? Because I love these. <laughs> Julian Bruno is one, which I don't know whether you know, but they're basically uh, plant-based, making dairy products, meats, all kinds of stuff, doing really well, had an up round since, and are doing some really good partnerships right now in terms of distribution. And the other is Numi in Germany, which is all kinds of fish product. The reason I'm interested in that stuff is because climate tech is one of my kind of pillars. So basically, I'm looking mainly at fintech, climate tech, B2B stuff where it's like, you know, horizontal mega level up in terms of efficiency, or B2B where it's a vertical where like Timberhub, for example, where there's just this huge outdated sector that just needs to be like brought into the modern world. And then under climate tech, there's just there's so much so much good stuff. And the hard thing is really, I think, finding great stuff it's all positively impactful <laughs> so that's a, that's like a slightly different challenge and then you know there's stuff which is very specific like value as i mentioned earlier software to help companies reduce their carbon footprint and then there's other products like plant-based food or bonnet which is an ev charging app which i'm an investor in which it's a useful consumer app which also has a huge sustainability play and so the plant-based food stuff came in through that angle We're very much uh, also kind of with Cocoa, like very excited about the climate space. And I think we've made two investments to date within the software space. I think the question of Andreas was very pointed and and right one. And if you look at the guys at Lower Carbon, which I think are doing a really great job, like a lot of the really high impact stuff also include hardware. So when I look at us, like I aspire, we don't, right? We do software and tech because the model of VC and our model works like that. But I do know that a lot of the high impact stuff I do include some hardware as well. So a, a small part of me wishes that, you know, uh, we had more of kind of the lower carbons that do some of that hardware. Yeah, definitely. Know? Yeah, hardware, and, well, and I mean, biotech generally, it's just such a long way from where I feel I'm most useful. <laughs> as yeah. a sort of consumer, mainly marketeer, there's not, I think I'm not going to be the most useful in those kind of worlds where, you know, the products that are still way, like, you know, a decade from being really launchable, that's... There's loads of awesome stuff there, but I just feel like there are other investors who are going to be way more helpful to the founders yeah. in that world. And maybe I jump in with something that is a bit off script and, you know. Again, oh, here we go. <laughs> no, just, just one thing, which is like, you know, the, the most uh, exciting opportunities you usually have to sell yourself as well too, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. where do you find yourself selling more hardly? Like what's the proposition you usually sell to the founders that you can bring to the table for them? That's a good question. Actually, it was really relevant in 21. Yeah. <laughs> when there were, it was really typical for a round to be like, well, it's we're closing tomorrow and there's like a tiny amount left and yeah. every single VC in the world wanted in. And then it was a case of like, Ooh, can I get in? Which it was surprising to me that I would then be in a sort of selling myself position, but absolutely. And the pitch is always, well, I think I can possibly help because I've been there. And if you have like a marketing question, which is going to be about building a brand or a growth question, which is going to be about using your like 
virality or consumer using your existing customers as an engine for that, then I think that could be helpful. But then this stuff's been different since then with uh, the changing environment because so many rounds aren't getting closed. I have to say, it's been a really interesting time to be to be an angel investor for two years, one of those years yeah. being 2021 and one being 2022. So let's see, let's see what this year is like, hopefully 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. I'm curious to hear, because you said you had uh, around 25 investments done by now. I'm curious to hear, how do you think about going forward, this, you know, the sustainability of you being an angel two years in, already 25 investments? How are you going to you know, manage that going forward, both time-wise and also... There's so many VCs that I talk to that are starting to raise a fund because, well, I kind of ran out of angel cash. So, <laughs> uh, I've thought a lot about this. And yeah, I am going to change strategy actually going forwards. So I don't think it's sustainable to do another 25 and deliver on the promise of being useful to all of them. There's two parts of the shift. So one is going from rather than looking at every deal in isolation or every potential company in isolation with a kind of, am I investing in this? Yes or no which is how I have been doing stuff. I think that leads you into areas that you don't quite understand or you maybe say yes to stuff. Not that I regret any of my investments, but there's some stuff where I'd happily say I had pretty low conviction and still said yes. Whereas actually I want to shift more to like having theses around specific parts of the spaces I'm looking at and then thinking more like, is this company the one that's going to deliver that for the world at scale? So it becomes less of a like, am I investing in this company? Yes, no, and more of a, which companies out there are going to actually deliver this? That's one shift. And as a result of that, I'm hoping to be in a more like high conviction space and then to force that, I'm going to increase check size as well. So my plan is to do lower volume and higher checks over the next year or uh, two years. But just, and I'm really just thinking, like, is this one of the deals that really matters this year? That's a quite a different approach to going, do I like this founder in this company? Most investors that I know that are investment thesis driven, they are oftentimes in a very broad geo. Because they, you know, if you're looking for the one that is going to solve air conditioning and the problem with the overuse of resources on that in the future, you're not going to find the one that is going to win in Europe, or you're definitely not sure that the one that's going to win is going to be in Europe. So for that reason, very thesis-driven investors are oftentimes global or at least not very local. I'm curious to hear both your past track record and your past investments. Have they been very local? And how do you think about that going forward? Uh, there's definitely a skew towards UK, Europe, um, but certainly not all. So I do, I do have investment and I'm, I'm really sort of open to anything globally, but it's just more like, how can I build networks and friends in countries? You know, it's obviously just easier to do it here. So I think, and you know, the access to great companies and really interesting founders is a function of how much time you put into building a network. So there isn't a sort of way of saying I globally now want to suddenly meet everyone who doesn't seem to exist. So one area where like, I've been quite thesis-driven, actually, is, is fintech. So emerging markets, fintech, I think, is such a huge space because I, I genuinely think a lot of like the real zero-to-one fintech in Europe and the US is done, and there are so many companies now which are, yeah, they're going to be useful, but they're sort of additive to the big change which has already happened. There's may, maybe a few bits left, so I'm not like closed by any means to fintech in the uh, developed world, but yeah, there's not that much left, I think. Whereas there's just so much... In other markets where there's still that like phase one, zero to one um, has to happen. So, for example, I'm investing in a Clasher in Nigeria and a Mono in Colombia, which are both good examples of like, especially Mono, perhaps, you know, there wasn't a really good way to open a business bank account on, well, there was no way to open a business <laughs> bank account online in Colombia. And you're like, okay, yeah, it's just a, you know, you, you, the execution risk is the only risk that there's no question that that's a product that is needed 
So that's a good example. I think once I'm not like, it's not a super specific thesis, but it's a broad enough thesis to then help me filter through stuff on a global scale. But it's a thread as well, right? Because when you're a generalist, let's say, right, your reach is much more about your direct network and your localities. Whereas when you're developing a thesis, per se, that can be the thread by which you develop your networks yes, and your true. brands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, suddenly, you know, you were known for having uh, operated wise within fintech, people will seek out your expertise and your value add within the segment, no matter the geo, right? And so yeah. organically, basically, um, you can have further reach more easily because of your focus, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's a balance between sort of uh, your reputation being based on the past, like the, your experiences as an ex-operator versus your current experiences as an investor. There are so many angels, so many potential sources of capital, and but there are, I think, fewer people that would have that like ex-operator focus. And so if you can match that first, I think that is exactly like you said, finding where that's most useful and then eventually perhaps develop a like investor reputation in that geo. But like, it's not something I'm feeling like I have to do. It's just yeah. like a potential way. Of course. Yeah, things might pan out. It's super interesting. And you said something in this that I thought was very well said because you said building deal flow is really building networks and, and how much effort you put into that. And I have to ask you because, you know, we're sitting here with uh, Anthony from Cocoa VC and me, myself, I'm a guy who is building uh, LP syndicates, angel LP syndicates into venture funds off the thesis that it makes sense to be an LP in venture funds. But I'd love to hear you. What is your take on that? How do you work with VCs or, or do you? Yeah, massively. I do work with VCs. And to be honest, that is the, it's pretty, uh, without any question, the way I've sort of accessed the industry is through getting to know VCs and partners in VCs and Anthony, for example, my favorite of all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay you later. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but yeah, you. that, um, yeah, for sure. And I think there's absolutely no way I, I could have made perhaps even all of the investments I've made if it wasn't through actively going out and getting to know VCs. And actually, at Wise, I wasn't in any way sort of investor facing other than just casually by being part of the management team. I wasn't like, uh, was never involved in fundraising. So I actually had pretty much no VC network apart from a couple that I'd known through Wise. But what I was really pleasantly surprised by was as an ex-operator, well, yeah, as an ex-operator, it was like open arms as I wanted to go and meet people. And I can see why now, because actually there's there's a real like two-way benefit. You know, essentially, I can help VCs find companies, but also vice versa. I can help do diligence for a VC. That's a pretty common thing I get asked to do, actually. Or, you know, we actually do the deal together and then, and then I'm sort of helpful as an angel. So there's a load of stuff that I think is very beneficial. So for anyone looking at like, oh, I want to get into angel investing, if you're an ex-operator, just go for it. Like I was so pleasantly surprised by how open arms the uh, VC world was. You guys tell me what you've been learning. If you heard that special sound that uh, we have preferred for you, uh, that means it's time to talk about your core learnings from investing. Are you ready? I've learned so much, but yeah, let's go. Okay, so if you had to share three learnings, three core learnings uh, with the audience, what would those be? Cool. So the first one, actually, I already covered it. It's around that shift in mentality when making a decision. So the shift from, am I investing in this company to, no, is this a company that I think will uh, execute on this thesis? Like that's the first, I hadn't quite clocked that before. So the second is around this, like, what happens once you're an investor? And, you know, I naively thought, oh, I'll have a regular monthly calls with everyone and they'll all be really useful. And I kind of alluded to it a bit earlier, but like, honestly, the variation is so huge. And um, also the variation in what people want out of an angel is so different. I was expecting to be 
like always asks quite strategic questions. But actually, sometimes they're like, do you know anyone who's good for this job? And like, it's way, there's a lot of stuff that's just way more practical. And actually, you realize, yeah, that is really useful. If I can just recommend someone for that job, that's so much more useful than doing like a workshop about how we're going to actually get from, you know, to our next 10,000 users or whatever. It's cool as well. I really like it. It's also made me think, okay, the more I build my network, the more that self fulfills and I become even more useful. Um, So, like hiring or interest to potential customers of B2B companies and all that kind of stuff. I was quite surprised by how much that's what founders want is in addition to the, like, you can help on this question. And then the third thing is the shift from going, and this is quite specific to an ex-operator kind of profile, but I can spend all day telling people what we did at Wise, but that's what we did at Wise. <laughs> it's not necessarily what's going to work here. And it's quite easy just to fall back into this, like, historic storytelling mode and, like, hoping that some of it's going to be useful it's much harder and much more valuable to actually really engage your brain and really think, no, I need to really like think what's going to work in this sector, in this context, which is again, where I said earlier, like the more you get to prep from the founder, the more you, or so the heads up on what they want to talk about, the more you can do that. And it's definitely something that you actually have to engage your brain to do. So I, you know, I think it's, it's easy to be lazy and just tell stories from the past, but it's not that helpful to anyone. I think this is such an important thing because, I mean, a lot of operators turned angels are, are fantastic. And I think we need more of that. But what I have seen in general is like a lot of operators tend to project their experiences to other founders in very unique, let's say, circumstances, right? So have you found that a lot of the learnings you've had are generalizable and you can adapt them into different? Or do you have any examples of that that come to mind? Yeah, there's definitely some stuff where I've realized actually what I'm really doing is talking people through a framework. Making your first marketing hire, that's a conversation I've had with pretty much all of my companies. Yeah, there's loads of common threads or a framework that I'll kind of talk through to help figure out what should be in that job spec. What kind of profile do you look for? So that's one where it's very tangible, yeah. And there are plenty of other examples. Another learning is how easy it is to waste my time and founder's time. I'm so regretful of some of the Mm. calls I had in the early days. I just shouldn't have said, let's have a call. It was such a waste of time. I was never going to invest. And that person's lost an hour, possibly more because of prep. And it's just not cool. So what I'm trying to do now is be much more like only even like, you know, ask for the intro or take the call. If I've looked at the deck properly, genuinely like this is a hell yeah. I'm like genuinely excited about this. There are definitely some false negatives. Definitely I've missed some by not taking the call, but I just think it's so much more efficient. And I do far fewer calls now and more time upstream of that looking through decks, which so I'm not wasting the founder's time at that point in the funnel. Once the call is happening, then I'm wasting the founder's time potentially. Very interesting and very refreshing. And in contrast to the typical VC form of what if I don't take this call, right? Uh, (laughs) I'd love to um, tease out a learning a bit from your number two there, which was, well, quite often what founders really need is the intros and it's the people that you can connect people to both on the customer side and recruiting side and so on. Just because you're a good thinking individual you are not necessarily a good investor because it's so much what you have built up around you already. And that is something that I think for anyone listening in who is, you know, wanting to do angel investing or or already doing angel investing, wanting to institutionalize into a venture fund, 
you can all the time work on building up the core asset of any investor, which in early stage is access to deals. It's the networks that you need to bring together a deal once you've gotten the access and get access in the first place. So I just think that that's such an important lesson. And it's not about learning frameworks and being smart about doing fancy words. That's McKinsey can use that, but founders typically can't, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, if I was advising my former self back in, in the early wise days, we, we were very skeptical of wisdoms that weren't learned on our product, on our problem, You're like very skeptical. It was almost part of the culture to a fault. We didn't use our angel investors anywhere near as much, I think partly because of that. But it's definitely not like a sin to ask someone to explain strategic stuff. Like obviously the whole like McKinsey can do that. <laughs> but like, you know, there is, there is really useful strategic help that totally can be useful and listened to in the early stages. But yeah, sometimes just you just feel really useful if you just connect someone up and then it happens. I helped uh, Julian Bruno, for example, do a pop, one of their distribution partnerships and it's just so tangible. You know, making a connection, it happens, everyone's happy. There's no need to think years later, was that useful? Which <laughs> definitely is. <laughs> yeah. And final thing before we go into our quick fire round, I would just ask you, on the first part, because in our episode with Keith Gross, I was kind of thinking, ah, fuck, I wish I had asked a bit more about that part, which is communication with the founders and ensuring good communication lines. Because you just said it as well, right? One of your core learnings was in the beginning, you thought you'd get a report every month and then everything would be great. And then you realized, ah, that's not really how this game works. And you started this whole conversation kind of the same place where when you said that some founders you are engaging a lot with, others much less. It's figuring out whether you force yourself on them or not, that kind of thing. So I'm curious to hear, how do you think if I should ask you with communication lines towards founders, how do you think about this? Is there something that's best practice for you and so on? So the relationships I have that I think are the best are the ones I have. I have them on WhatsApp. There's a quick question channel. There's no like, we need to arrange a call. It's just like, oh, hey, can you have a quick look at this, that. So there's a sort of always on channel which is uh informal but efficient and yes there is like a monthly kind of investor report which i do think has to be or at least quarterly like but there, there, i think there needs to be some formal process of not for angels for like for all the investors you know the, the funds or whoever it's just good rigor to force yourself to write that down and actually reflect on what you have done and haven't done and it always then also sets up questions that i can then say hey do you want to have a session about this so from the investment reports quite often i'll ping a founder and go hey looks like you're ready to start talking about ramping up marketing spend let's do a session and um, so the investor reports are really helpful for that i don't know whether you necessarily need to have like a regular recurring but some sort of informal commitment to yeah we are we are going to meet or at least have a call fairly regularly with some structure i don't necessarily feel like you need to just have a monthly catch-up because that's when you get into this sort of i don't know sometimes it can feel a bit like you're just asking for an update which i'm never doing in the catch-ups that's what the update email is the best relationships i have look like that roughly for what it's worth, like experience from a VC, well, angel-like VC is exactly the same. Like, it? It's async on WhatsApp. Yeah. It's usually, right? You want to establish your relationship and proximity. It is investor updates, prompting, basically proactive. Yeah. Now, the added thing we do, but it's also because we do this 24-7, we found is useful is we tend to put a slot aside uh, a month where the founder can use it or not if they don't want to. Yeah, nice. And it's their time to use it as they want to, when they tend to take it up all the time. Do they? Yeah, that's yeah. good. If we're not being useful, then there's no point in having the call. And it just may well be that the time is wrong. With pre-seed stuff, because my focus is marketing growth, quite often, actually, there's not that much to talk about for six months or so. And then there's loads to talk about. 
So there'd be no point in me trying to have regular calls with a founder who's nowhere near live yet. It is now time for the quickfire round. First question, what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started angel investing? Okay, this is a bit stupid, but being a VC, I think is actually a really hard job. <laughs> I used to look at the, the investors we had at Wise and sort of, it's hard to see. They always seem quite chill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice travel. Very hard working and sure, but I never quite saw what the hard work looks like until I'm like, I've just seen Anthony's calendar. <laughs> I hadn't quite appreciated that, how much, and also how stressful it is. And, and when it's, you know, small check my own money, it's it's not that stressful. But, you know, in a, in a VC fund manager's, you know, having to make a pre-seed bet with someone else's money, that's hardcore, actually. And actually doing it teaches you it is really hard. It's not all roses, like I maybe once did. <laughs> that's the nicest thing I've heard anyone say about VCs. We actually work hard. <laughs> Second question, what would be your top tips to angels wanting to do more international investments? Kind of covered it earlier, but that is, you just got to go out and find out who the really good funds are in that geography and get yourself in that way. I, th I think that's the best way to do it. You don't need to go to a bunch of countries and meet a bunch of founders first. I think that's sort of second, like, you know, first get a good understanding for the markets through these early stage funds who are already there and learn that way. Thank you for that. That was the best answer you could give me, actually. That was even better than the other one. <laughs> so final question, and this one goes a bit on the personal side. What advice would you give your 10 year younger self if you only had 30 seconds? Just chill out. <laughs> Stop worrying about stuff. I used to worry too much about like, I don't know, I have to have a hard conversation with someone tomorrow or like, you know, trying to please two people too much. And yeah, like you just don't, you don't need to worry about stuff. You need to lean into hard things. It, it, like, it took me years to get to feel like I was sort of tough in some environments where I should have just been way tougher earlier. And it was all because like, I don't know. But yeah, chill out and get on with it. Don't worry, it'll be fine. Have the hard conversation. <laughs> Love it. Well, I think the European tech ecosystem is lucky to have you. Can't wait for more co-investments together, of definitely, course. Definitely. Thanks very much for joining us, Joe. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Super Angel Podcast. The go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends and join our Angel LP Syndicate at eu.vc. And if you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Our end-to-end -end platform automates your back office so you can focus on the things that matter, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and we've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, we'll be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on our platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. You've been touched by an angel, girl.